What is grace? That's a question I haven't really thought of. That's kind of a hard definition to, to give. I know it has something to do with God. Why that French woman that works at my apartment complex named Grace? To me, it's kindness and goodness. A uh, ballerina is graceful or something like that. Grace, basically, I would say to be thankful. I'm not big on definitions, but that's that's what you do right before you eat. It makes me think of peacefulness. Does that help? It's the way somebody walks. Grace is something that you pick up from family. God is good. God is grace. Where does grace come from? Grace comes from your actions and your deeds. If you let it come to you, it'll it'll be there. You have to accept yourself, so it really comes from inside. I just think it's something that everybody should have. So I would say originally from God, but through other people. I guess from anybody, you know, anybody that wants to be graceful. I think you can find grace in other people. Inside you, in your mind. I do believe that grace comes from God. I think he's the only person qualified to give grace. Interesting, right? I think my favorite responses were, Grace is the French lady who lives in my apartment building or works in my apartment building. And I'm not big on definitions, but I think it's what you do before we eat. Those are my two favorite answers. But this question of what is grace, where does it come from, what's it for, who's qualified to give it, these are the very questions that were at the core of the Reformation 500 years ago and we are continuing to, to answer these questions. You can see from that video, there's lots of different ways that people would answer those questions of what is grace? Is it important? Who's qualified to give it? Today we're continuing in a series that we started called Reformed, looking at the changes that Martin Luther called the church to make 500 years ago, but also asking the question, what are the changes that we, 500 years later, need to maybe think about making in the church today? Martin Luther was a young German monk who loved the church, and he dedicated his entire life to serving the church. He actually walked away from a very promising career as a lawyer to enter into ministry. He had given his whole life into trying to figure out how to please God, how to get right with God. And the further into the religious systems he got, the more he realized that the system was rigged against him The very core of this experience was the issue of grace, the issue of justification with God, getting right with God, salvation from an eternity of hell. The church in Luther's day taught that salvation was obtained through a system called Ordo Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the way of salvation. And I'm not a huge drawer, but I'm going to try to do that this week because Chris does. And I want to, if he can do it, I can do it. But basically, just imagine this. Imagine that this person right here represents humanity, right? And the church taught that God is basically up here. God is perfect and God is just and all these different things. And in order to be able to approach God, we need to be justified. We need to be made right before God. And, And the church put justification right here. Before we can get to God, we have to be justified. And the church taught that basically you had to work your whole life trying to not sin and to do good works and to do good deeds and, and, and keep on striving and struggling. But the church also taught that no matter how hard we try, we can never be good enough. And so we had to, they had these things called indulgences that Chris talked about last week. Where basically, there were saints that had done so much good in their lives that there was a stockpile in heaven of these indulgences, these get-out-of-hell-free cards... And you could, you could purchase these in order to, to kind of further your cause, advance yourself up the slope. But even then, it was a gamble 
frankly. Even then, you wouldn't actually know until you died whether or not you had done enough and, and purchased enough indulgences and had performed enough penance and done enough good things. When we die, we go to purgatory, and then we wait. And then in the final judgment, we find out whether or not we've done enough. The, the historian Stephen Osmond said, For medieval theologians, the present life remained an anxious pilgrimage. Man lived in unresolved suspense, fearing damnation and hoping for salvation. Ever in need of confession and indulgence, discipline, consolation, stately intercession, and a self-help of good works. Saving faith was a constantly developing faith. Fides carite formata, faith formed by the continuous works of love and charity. It's continuous works to try to prove, to earn faith. And Luther realized that if that was true, then he, and frankly most of humanity with him, was doomed. There was no way to be good enough to please God. And he was, too purchased to per, he was too poor to purchase the indulgences that it would take to make himself right. So if the church was right, God was an angry, distant judge, keeping a record of all of our rights and our wrongs and our indulgences and our penances and, and the indulgences that we've purchased. And there was no way to please him. Not enough. But then Luther had what he would later call his tower experience. Luther got his hands on a copy of the Greek New Testament and began to read it to go back to the word to the word to see what the word had to say and as he was reading he came across a verse that would change his life and in doing it would change the church's history and in a lot of ways the history of the western world Luther read Romans 1 17 this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight this is accomplished from start to finish by faith as the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. His eyes were opened. It's God who saves. It's not accomplished through good works. It's not accomplished by trying to be more righteous. It says it's accomplished from start to finish. All of it by faith. It's not accomplished in part. 100%. It can't be purchased. And his eyes were opened. As he continued to read, he began to see that the same theme repeated over and over again throughout the book of Romans. It says in Romans 3, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And this part is critical. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Their graph is right. God is here and we are there. All fall short. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. For he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. He was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. 
God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. He saw this theme not only repeated, but extrapolated upon, expanded upon throughout the entire book of Romans, but then not just in Romans. He saw it emerge in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and all of Paul's writing in Titus and Timothy. He started to see this theme of God's grace being sufficient throughout all of the New Testament. He even saw it interposed over the Old Testament. Salvation, according to Paul, is not something you work for. It's something you work from. We don't have to live our lives trying to please a distant and angry God. God, through Jesus Christ, is in us. He's not distant and angry. He is in us and lives in us. We aren't saved because of our righteousness. It says we're saved because of his righteousness. He realized this, that is the good news. That is the gospel. And he realized that the church for 1,500 years had gotten this turned around. They they, they had the chart all flipped over. You don't live your whole life hoping and praying and scratching on existence, hoping that you can earn justification. What he realizes is that justification doesn't happen here. God brought justification down in the person of Jesus Christ and placed justification at the cross. You don't have to get to God to be justified. God brought justification to us. It's been accomplished. Justification is the starting point, not a hoped-for destination. I think it's important to point out that we're not united to Christ because we've been justified. It's the other way around. We're justified because Scripture says we are united now with Christ, who is himself our justification. We received Christ's benefits precisely and only because we received Christ. Paul in Galatians 2.20, said that it's not even he who now lives. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's like he is so united now with Christ that it's not even he who himself lives. It's not he who is trying to make this climb, this journey to God. But it's Christ who lives in him and through him, walking along that journey with him. Luther reiterated that idea in 1535 at a lecture when he said these words. But so far as justification is concerned, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. What a marvelous way of speaking. Because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well by the cementing and the attachment that are through faith by which we become as one body in the spirit. Later in the same sermon, he said, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which can't be separated, but remains attached to him forever and declares, I am as Christ. And in turn, and this is amazing, says Christ in turn says, I am as that sinner who is attached to me and I to him. For by faith we are joined together into one flesh and one bone. It's that bridegroom language that Chris told us about the very first week that scripture uses. We are so joined that it's like a husband and wife that are, are joined to become one flesh. 
Luther realized for the first time at that tower experience that we are saved by grace for good. We are saved by grace for good. We are saved and made righteous and justified before God completely, 100%, by placing our faith on God's grace. Nothing we can do or not do can take anything from or add anything to the salvation that we have through faith in God's grace. Nothing could separate us. It is forever and for good. And that realization for Luther changed everything. Changed his entire perspective on the journey of how growth happens of how we get to God. He saw the spiritual journey in a whole new light. That because of this, the rest of the journey doesn't live on our own, trying to prove our salvation through works. We can live in Christ because Christ lives and moves in and through us. It changed everything. That was the reformation that the church needed in Luther's day. That was the problem that needed to be addressed. And I'm guessing for some of us here today, maybe we're still there. I mean, maybe you've lived your whole life feeling like you're not good enough. Like God can't possibly accept you. You could never live up to his standards anyway, so why keep trying? Maybe you feel like God is angry and distant and vindictive and just waiting for you to screw up so he can add a check mark to your naughty list. What Luther found and what Luther helped the world to see is that, well, maybe that's the picture that religion paints of who God is. It's not the picture that scripture paints. It's not the picture that the people who knew Jesus personally painted. It's not the the description that the, the prophets who talked with God and who knew God painted. The Bible shows us a God who loves us desperately and wants to be restored into relationship with us. A relationship that's so close that when it, when it describes it, it uses language like a husband to a wife, like a father to his child, like a mother hen covering her, her chicks with her wings so she could protect them. It uses language of a rescuer, a shepherd who will come and, and will save his lost sheep. It gives us a picture of, of a God who comes and takes on flesh and who's willing to touch the sick, to be among the poor, to heal and to raise from the dead. That's the God that Luther saw when he went back to the Bible. When he went back and, and saw what scripture had to say, what God had to say about himself. Luther had a tower experience moment. Where for the very first time he saw God for who he was, who he claimed to be, who scripture painted him to be. Have you had that moment? Do you need to have that moment again? I think for those of us who have been in religion a long time, it's really easy for these systems to start getting built back up. To lose sight of the God that we originally fell in love with. To lose sight of our first Love, do you need to be re-exposed to God? I think that's the other group that's perhaps in the room today for whom this issue of how a person is saved is saved isn't really the primary issue. It wasn't for me. You know, I mean, these theological truths, which kind of sound lofty and high, that's not something that I really wrestled with. I grew up in and around this stuff my whole life. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were Protestant. My parents were Reformed. My parents were born 500 years after Luther. I knew that I was saved by grace through faith. I knew that uh, I had prayed a prayer when I was five years old, and therefore I was in the club. I had done all I needed 
to do, if a street evangelist came up to me and asked, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? I'd say, absolutely. I could even tell you why. I prayed a prayer. I'm in the club. I have my fire insurance. And I think that is maybe what, for me, and I'm guessing for others in this room, needed at some point to be reformed in my understanding of God. That needs to be reformed again and again and again. That needs a tower experience. You know, I knew back when I was five because I had prayed these magic words that I was in, that I was saved, that I was now a Christian. But for what? I mean, what did that actually mean beyond I was right and everybody else was wrong? It meant that uh, there were a lot of things that, dif- that distinguished us. It meant I couldn't go to the, the movies that my friends went to. I couldn't go to dances. I couldn't swear. I couldn't drink or smoke. I couldn't be promiscuous. I couldn't, for some reason, play card games, except Uno. I, I think it had something to do with this fear that I would develop a lifelong gambling habit and just fall over the edge. And so let's just be, you know, probably isn't going to happen, but let's just be safe and stick to Uno. I don't know what that means. But the list of I couldn'ts went on and on and on. And I think for the most part, I guess I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. Oh, and I got to give up every Wednesday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And instead of having fun with my friends, I got to go to church and sing weird songs about being washed in the blood and listen to philosophical conversations that I couldn't really follow. And every Sunday night, I'd go home and have a spanking for being bad during the service. (laughs) Christianity, who wants it? (laughs) See, for those of us who grew up, I think, in the Reformed tradition... We celebrate that, you know, the church had built up all these religious systems of determining who's in and who's out and what holiness looks like. We celebrate the fact that 500 years ago, Luther tore those things down. And then we spent 500 years rebuilding them. Rebuilding our own ways of measuring who's in and who's out. What holiness looks like from a behavioral standpoint. Our way of defining how we make ourselves holy. And it's mostly a list of couldn'ts and shouldn'ts. But just to be safe, we add a whole bunch of shoulds and musts as well. Like you really should serve in kids ministry. And you should go on missions trip. And you should give more money. And you should volunteer and serve. And we're going to soup kitchen and all these different things. We had a conversation a couple weeks ago in our small church as we were unpacking some of the unsulated stuff. Where one of the, first, one of the people actually said, like, it almost feels like there's this hierarchy of, like, if you really love Jesus, you're going to do really hard things. Like, you get extra credit with God. Is that how this works? Do we serve out of a place of guilt and shame or to prove that we're holy? We subtly believe that if we do things that are good, that God will bless us. And if we do things that are bad, God will punish us, right? I mean, we don't say that we actually believe that, but in our brains, we kind of do. For instance, if a job falls through at work, we wonder if it maybe it's because we looked at that website last week. If we're hoping for a promotion, maybe we don't drink for a week so that God will be happy with us and bless us. We live a little extra at Christmas knowing that God will bless us for giving. Anybody? No? Am I the only one who has these little thoughts in my brain? No. I mean, we do these things we work this out we have this theology that goes outside our theology and is actually how we think about god like he's a service provider that we can manipulate into doing what we want by our behavior i think all that's evidence that we need to at least look at the possibility that our religion needs some reforms as well those of us who grew up in the reformed tradition are really comfortable embracing the idea that we're dependent on god's freely given grace for our salvation But then many of us think that the rest then depends on us, on our efforts. Like God's grace was sufficient to save us from hell. 
And now it's our turn to do the work. But just as we're dependent on God's grace to save us, we are just as dependent on God's grace to transform us, to make us into his likeness. We are just as dependent on God's grace to make us good like God is good. We call it justification and sanctification. God is saving us through justification right here. And he is making us more holy, more good through this process of sanctification, which is not based on our works, but based on God's grace working in us. Marcus Peter Johnson, a theology prophet, Moody wrote these words. Christ is our justification, and he is no less our sanctification. Thus, united to him, we are not only forgiven and accounted righteous, we are also transformed into his holy image. In giving us himself, Christ will no more leave us condemned and guilty, unjustified, than he will leave us corrupted and depraved, unsanctified. This is because, as Calvin so incisively put it, Christ cannot be divided into pieces. Jesus is not a partial savior of a piecemeal gospel. We are joined to Christ. We receive all of who he is for us. I think it's a harder concept for us to get our heads around. Because what are we supposed to do then? That's not American. That doesn't sound like a self-made man, self-made woman. We have a role to play, right? I think this is maybe where we who have grown up in the Reformed Church need a new reform that we experience today and the next day and the next day. That leads us to our next fill-in. We are saved by grace for good. To be made good. To be made sanctified, which is just as dependent on grace or justification. is. We can't add anything to it or take anything from it. It's solely grace. You know, it's funny, on this issue of justification, we who have grown up in the Reformed Church argue vehemently that, that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That is God and God alone who saves us by his grace, right? That is the Lutheran way. But for some reason, on this issue of sanctification, we think we can handle it. Like, thanks God, but we'll take it from here. And we start climbing the mountain ourselves, making ourselves right. Making sure that those around us are right according to our standards. But I should point out that that doesn't mean we have nothing to do and that we can sit passively by waiting for God to do his thing like he's some sort of service provider in the sky. Dallas Willard wrote, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's an amazing idea. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's not a matter of whether or not we do good things. It's not a matter of whether or not we are trying to pursue God and lean into God. It's that are we doing it for the right reasons? Are we doing it to prove to ourselves, to prove to God, and to prove to others that we are holy, that we are righteous? Or are we doing it in response of awe and wonder and gratefulness, leaning into the God who loves us? It's not that we don't have work to do. The question is, why are we doing it? Here's an analogy. Forgive me if you've heard this before. In our house, we have, uh, our kids have an allowance. And in our house, kids have chores that they have to do. And we've explained to our kids that they are not paid an allowance because they do the chores. That would make them employees of our family. They are members of our family. Because they're members of our family, they receive an allowance. They are full, complete members. And because they are members of our family... 
They are given jobs and tasks to do because they are full, complete members of our family. In the same way, we don't do good works to earn our salvation. That makes God our employer. This transaction, we work for him and in turn, he provides us with a retirement plan. Salvation. We don't do good works because we owe God a great debt because he saved us and now we're stuck working for the man. That makes God like a loan shark. Right? It makes us the debtors. That simply means that while we're saved from hell, the responsibility, the debt is still ours and we have to work to pay it off. We do good works because we are true, full members of God's family. We are God's children adopted and made complete and full members. We've been invited into his mission and given the opportunity to work with him in the family business. And it's a very successful family business that we will inherit one day. I think that brings us to our final point in our fill-ins. You may have identified a theme. We are saved by grace for good. For our good. To make us good. But beyond us, to be good in this world. To demonstrate the goodness of God in this world. I was talking to Jeff Olson this week. And I can't go uh, through a sermon without quoting him. Apparently, he said, we aren't saved from, we aren't just saved from something. We're saved for something, you know, in the same way that, uh, when, when Luther had sort of this tower experience, when he encountered Romans one seventeen, I similarly had a tower experience that came to me similarly by diving into the word of God. And if, and if you are here today and you don't have a Bible, we would love to send you home with one. We have them at, our, at each of the doors. We'd love to give you one. As a gift. But a couple of years ago, I had a similar tower experience. I had been in ministry for a few years. And frankly, it was getting a little bit humdrum, a little bit monotonous. I, I spent so much energy building the systems and rebuilding the systems that I, I got caught somewhere in here, frankly. Wondering if this is really all that it was about, was kind of maintaining religiousness. And then I read these words from Ephesians. I've heard them so many times that somehow in this reading, sitting at my desk, in my church office, my eyes were open. They said, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of his incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness toward us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Let's pause there just for a minute. There's so much in this text that is just so rich. It says God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much. This is not a picture of a distant judge who's sitting in heaven just waiting for us to fail so that he can make a mark in his little ledger. The picture that scripture paints is of a God who is rich in mercy and who loves us so much. Loves us in fact so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave his life when he raised Christ from the dead. This is a God who did not wait for us to come to him to be justified, but in the person of Jesus Christ brought justification to us. Who brought the way, the means of salvation to us. And then gave us a means, a way to climb, to be united with him forever because he has conquered 
death. It says, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We're united with Christ. We have a place in eternity next to Christ based on God raising us up. God raising us and lifting us up this mountain to God. And he did it by his grace for our good, to make us good and show the world that he is good. It says in verse 7, so God can point to us. We become his examples in all future ages. Examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness toward us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. What did I miss? Oh yeah, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. In case that wasn't clear in all of the other verses, Paul reiterates it here. Again, it's only by grace that we have been saved. That we are being saved and that one day we will be saved by grace. Paul continues. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It says that salvation's not a reward so that for the things we've done so that no one can boast. But I think we can extrapolate from there and say, it's not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast. And it's not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can live in shame knowing that we failed to live up to it. It's so that none of us hold ourselves to a standard that we couldn't possibly live up to. Say It is a free gift. No one can live in shame. We are God's masterpiece, it says, designed and built and commissioned to show off God's craftsmanship, to show the world what God is like, what his character is like, what his love is like, what goodness looks like. We are created and made good to be the good in this world, to bring this kingdom, God's kingdom into this world as it is in heaven. We aren't just saved from something. We're saved for something. To be good in this world, not to win God's favor. We already have it. It says he loved us so much. Not from a place of trying to earn salvation or prove our worth. We aren't wanting to rebuild the old legalism. The new sordo salutus. A new way of salvation. We're adopted kids. Brought into God's family to join him in his family business of restoring this world. Of bringing his kingdom in this world. As it is in heaven. I'm going to invite the band to come at this point. My prayer for us in this, in this series, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up, frankly, all that aware of the Reformation or Luther. Um, my prayer for us in this series, though, is that we would encounter God in a new way, that we'd encounter Scripture in a new way, that we would encounter the, the understanding of what grace really means and how amazing it actually is. And somehow we might even discover why we need grace in this series that God would be giving us as individuals and as a church that tower experience. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact, the truths that are revealed about who you are and, and who you see us to be, who you are making us to be God, for the ways in which that we have, built up these systems that are, that are religious, that paint pictures of you that simply aren't accurate. God, we repent. 
draw us back into your word, draw us back into your spirit, draw us back into relationship with you, that we might more fully experience you and bring that experience to this world. We ask you to move and to work in us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.